Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Kohelet. This is a podcast brought to you by the elders of Maricopa Springs Family Church. And our goal during these episodes is to bring you sound biblical theology. Uh, we are currently going through a book called Systematic Theology by Dr. Wayne Grudem. This episode will cover chapter 9 of that book on the existence of God. And in this chapter, we're dealing with the question, how do we know that God exists? And Dr. Grudem is essentially going to give us two answers to this question. I'm going to break his two answers down into three answers for the sake of this podcast, because I do think there's a bit of a distinction worth discussing uh, when it comes to his second point. But I should say that as we begin this episode, we really need to reflect back to some things that we covered in prior episodes. Because uh, when we get down to the end of this question, how do we know that God exists? Really, as Christians, there's one fundamental answer that we should give. We believe that God exists because the Bible tells us that God exists. We believe that God exists because his word reveals this truth to us. And you're going to hear that answer a lot uh, as we go through this book, Systematic Theology. You know, why do we believe this? Well, the answer is because the Bible says so. Um, and that's why, actually, if you think about the layout of this book, the way Dr. Grudem has gone about formatting his movement through systematic theology. He begins by dealing with the doctrine of the word of God rather than beginning with the doctrine of God himself. And that's because our doctrine of God is given to us through the scriptures. And so we need to have a sound understanding of what the word of God is, what the scriptures are, what this book is that reveals God to us before we even get to the question of who is God or what is he like or how do we know that he exists? So to answer this question, how do we know God exists? We're going to show that man has an inherent knowledge that there is a God. And we're also going to discuss that creation points to a creator. But again, even those answers are answers that we are ultimately going to arrive at because the Bible tells us that man has an inherent understanding of God and that creation points to a creator. In other words, again, fundamentally, we know that God exists because of what the Bible teaches. So if for some reason you're listening to this episode without first understanding the Christian view of the doctrine of scripture and the authority of the Bible, then I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes first. Because really, those episodes are going to kind of lay an important foundation for the rest of systematic theology as we study it. In particular, I would point you back to episodes two through four, where those topics are discussed in detail. Now, to Dr. Grudem's first answer to the question, how do we know that God exists? Well, we know God exists because every person has a deep inner sense that God exists and that we are creatures, and that God is our creator. Romans chapter 1 is a really good place to see this truth taught in the Bible in detail, because it talks about man knowing there is a God, because God himself placed the knowledge of this truth within every person. So the Bible teaches us that every man knows God exists, 
because God has placed that knowledge inherently inside of every person. So the problem here is not that people don't know there is a God. The problem is that man suppresses what is obviously true. And this is the teaching that comes to us out of Romans chapter 1. So for this reason, then, the Bible in Psalm 14 uh, verse 1 calls the man who says there is no God a fool. A fool is a person who denies what is obviously true. And the most fundamental truth of all is that there is a God. And for man to not acknowledge that shows that he is foolish. So why do people not believe in God? Well, because they reject the truth, which they know to be true even as they deny it. And this is a difficult teaching, I admit, but it is in fact biblical. And uh, if you want to look at this a little bit more, feel free to pause this podcast right now. Go read Romans chapter 1 that deals with you know, man's problem with sin. And really what you'll see there is at the heart of this problem with sin is this truth that man knows there is a God but refuses to acknowledge him as God. Now, beginning on page 170 of Dr. Grudem's Systematic Theology, he explains the second reason why we know God exists. So the first reason, again, is that every person has a deep inner sense that God exists. The second reason is because of the evidence in Scripture and the evidence in nature. Now, Dr. Grudem makes both of these one point, but I want to split them out into two points so that we can be clear here. So traditionally, the church has seen this answer as fundamentally two different parts. Through church history, theologians have spoken of the book of Scripture, which is the Bible that teaches us about the existence of God. And the church has also talked about the book of nature, which is creation. So we can read in the Bible and we can learn about God and we can, uh, if you think about it, we can read from nature and we can learn about God. And nature teaches us some things about the existence of God. Another uh, way that, um, an, another term that is used to discuss these concepts is special revelation, which is the Bible. It's special because it reveals particular things about God, uh, especially that God was born to a virgin, that he came in the flesh, that he was incarnate. This is Jesus, the Son of God. These are special truths about God. And uh, these are clear, particular things that further expound on the existence of God and the way that he relates to mankind in particular. Particular things like his character, that he's good and loving, or his plan for salvation. These are all aspects of special revelation or the book of Scripture. And then we have natural revelation or the book of nature. And this deals with what we can know about God from the things that he has made. So his power, he must be powerful if he has created all of the universe. Uh, His goodness, that this universe is orderly and consistent. His eternality, that he existed before all things, that he is the reason for the existence of all things. He's eternal because he had no beginning. 
So the Bible teaches us that we can know that God exists from nature. We find this in places like Psalm 19, where we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God. And every person understands that things with great complexity and order, things with rules and laws that govern them, those things require intelligence. They require some kind of origin. And we know this just by looking at uh, creation itself. You know, if you walk into a forest and you see a disordered clump of trees, that looks very just natural. But if you walk into a garden where you find trees that are lined up or hedges that are nicely trimmed, then you know that there was some involvement in the creation of that thing. So maybe some other examples would be something like a board game. You wouldn't expect a board game to just come into existence. It has rules and it has parameters. You wouldn't expect that a book of laws would just write themselves or that a complex system like a car engine would just manifest. No, all of these things, the board game with its rules, the garden with its rows and hedges, the book of laws with its order, the car engine with its complexity, all of these natural things point to various influences from a creator. And in the same way, creation itself declares the glory of an all-wise, all-powerful creator who we call God. And again, this is clear. This is observable in nature. Now, at this point, we can go a little bit deeper into what Dr. Grudem calls the traditional proofs for the existence of God. These are rational or philosophical arguments that we can use to try and overcome the distortion of sin that warps our thinking and prevents us from seeing the truth about God. Okay, so these things are obvious, and yet because of sin, we fail to see very obvious things. And we can use things from within creation like reason or philosophical thinking or arguments, and we can come to the conclusion that there are facts about God that we can know. This is uh, how we know that God exists, and we're drawing these things from the book of nature, natural revelation. And these are helpful tools. We're going to cover them here in a moment. But again, ultimately, as Christians, we need this special revelation of God's word to know more about God. We can know some basic things about who he is from this creation that he has made. But if we need to know any particulars, we're going to need God to reveal those things to us. And we'll talk about that more in future chapters. But still, the traditional proofs for the existence of God can be helpful, and they're worth discussing in a podcast like this about theology. So there are four proofs that we're going to consider very briefly. And if you're interested in these things, you can do deeper research, but we'll just cover them uh, very basically because this is a podcast about biblical theology, not about philosophical arguments for the existence of God. But first, we have the cosmological argument for God. Cosmos is the Greek word for the universe, but it includes specifically within it the idea of the ordered nature of the world and everything in it. So the Greeks understood that the cosmos, the universe, is not some 
result of a big bang, but that because it has order to it, it must have someone who put it into order. So the cosmological argument for God is the idea that we already touched on with board games and laws and the complex system of the car engine. Everything known in the universe has some kind of cause. There's nothing in the material world that does not have some origin or beginning or condition to its existence. So I remember uh, actually being in Dr. Grudem's systematic theology class when I was a student at Phoenix Seminary, and he gave us this little illustration. If uh, a land, uh, a Mars rover were to land on Mars and be driving along, and all of a sudden it came upon a watch, with the complexity of that item, that watch, we would not expect that it just came to be on the surface of Mars. No, the complexity of that watch shows that there was some kind of intention in its creation. And this is kind of the cosmological argument. Everything that exists has some kind of cause to its existence. It has an origin. It has a beginning. It has a condition that brought it about. And so if we have a material world and that material world has a beginning, even staunch atheists believe that the universe had a beginning, then there must be a God who existed before that beginning in order to give the universe an origin. And this God is eternal because he himself has no beginning, but he gave a beginning to all that is in the material world. Second, we have the teleological argument for the existence of God. So this is another traditional proof for the existence of God. And really, this is kind of a sub-argument to the cosmological argument. It's got a slightly different emphasis, though. So telos is the Greek word for end or goal or purpose. And we can look at the universe, we can look at nature, and we can see that all of it functions purposefully. And that shows that it was all put together intelligently. The universe does indeed have an order to it. It not only has an origin, it has a beginning point, but it has an order to it. And therefore, since the universe not only exists, but it has a purposeful design, we can conclude there was a creator who made it. Number three, the third traditional proof for the existence of God is called the ontological argument. Greek is helpful again here. Ontos is the Greek word for being. So we can define God as that being of which nothing greater can be imagined. Let me say that again. We can define God as that being of which nothing greater can be imagined. To say it less in a less complicated way, God is simply the greatest being that is. He is the being from which being exists. He is the being who is self-existent. Ontologically, he exists and therefore everything else finds its existence. The universe is not self-existent. And uh, even staunch atheists who know anything about uh, physics or astronomy, they'll admit to you that the universe is not self-existent. And if the universe is not self-existent, then there must be a God who is being, who is ontos in himself, 
and from him, from his being, all other things derive their ontological existence, their being. Then finally, number four, we come to the fourth traditional proof for the existence of God, which is the moral argument. And this argument asserts that it's clear and obvious that man has some kind of inherent sense of what is right and wrong that transcends culture and an understanding that justice is necessary. So there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong. Otherwise, where do these standards for what is good and right and what is wrong and what is evil, where do they come from? I like to personally illustrate this because more and more in a, in a secular, pluralistic, relativistic culture, people will say, no, all morality is just culturally devised. Uh, but, but I like to personally illustrate this by pointing out that even the most hardened thief, even the person who is most convinced that his thievery is you know, morally acceptable, if you were to break into his house and steal his stuff – he would obviously be offended and upset by that. So there are some moral absolutes. That's clear to everybody. And those moral absolutes also must have an origin. An additional aspect of this is the argument that because the universe has a moral fabric to it and all people have a sense of right and wrong, we can reason that we are accountable to God for living a life that is morally right and good. So uh, maybe another way to illustrate this, I'll, I'll give you two that I like to use. The first one is if you ask somebody, well, do you, th you know, if you ask a, a very committed person who believes that there is no right or wrong, there's no truth, there's no morality. If you ask them if they think Hitler was a good person, they're going to scoff at that idea. Well, how do they know Hitler wasn't a good person if there's no moral absolute? But I think just about everybody would agree that Hitler was a scumbag, and so there is some kind of moral absolute. Or another one, if you want to talk to a relativist about uh, morality, and they say, well, there is no right or wrong, there's no objective truth, and you explain to them that uh, if they have children, you would like to eat their baby. I know it's absurd, but that's the point, right? Because they're going to, again, say, no, 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 you can't do that. That's out of line. That's unacceptable. And again, it just proves that all people have an understanding that there is some objective good and wrong, some, some things that are right and some things that are not right. And this is the moral argument for the existence of God. That sense of right and wrong comes from the creator. Now, all of these arguments are based in the creation which God has made. They're reasonable and they're valid in that they correctly evaluate the evidence and they lead us to a conclusion. So in these arguments, we're using what is in creation to sort of argue our way up to an understanding of the existence of God. There is a God. He's the creator and the source of the universe. The universe is purposefully designed that points to intelligence. And God must exist as a being which nothing greater can be imagined. And God has placed inside of us a sense of right and wrong. Now, of course, although these are reasonable and they're valid arguments, not everybody is going to be persuaded by these arguments, but that does not change the fact that they are indeed valid arguments. These are, this is why these are called the traditional proofs for the existence of God. 
But the fact that not everyone is persuaded by these arguments, even though they're true and valid, it leads us kind of back to the primary problem with man that we discussed briefly at the beginning. Man does not believe in the existence of God because sin has corrupted man's heart and mind. It's not that it's not, we, man doesn't, does not disbelieve in God because it's not obvious. Man disbelieves because he is corrupted by sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So scripture there is talking about Satan, who has been given some dominion and authority in this fallen world until Christ returns to gather together his people and redeem all of creation. And what does Satan do with that dominion? Well, he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see what is obvious. So again, in a way, we're brought full circle. The Bible tells us that God does exist and it reveals to us what God is like. But man cannot accept the Bible as true unless God opens his eyes to see and believe. So although we know God exists from an inner sense as human beings, and also from creation, and from many reasonable arguments, God himself ultimately must overcome our ignorance and our willful suppression of the truth in order for us to accept that God exists and that the Bible reveals him to us. Maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 through 14 says it best, speaking on this point. We read, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's where we conclude this chapter on the existence of God, chapter 9, that essentially God must reveal these things to us or we won't believe it, even though it's quite obvious that God does exist. In our next episode, we'll discuss where knowledge of the existence of God must go from here, namely that we must look to God in order for him to reveal himself to us, or our knowledge about God will always come up short. In other words, natural revelation is not sufficient to teach us everything that we need to know about God, but God desires to be known and so he gives us further revelation in scripture. So I hope you'll join us again for chapter 10 as we get into that in more detail. Until next time, I hope that this has been helpful. Blessings.